Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. G'day and welcome back. It's great to have you with us today. We just really pray that today, if you're just tuning in and checking out Kenmore Church or you're sitting at home because you can't get to one today, we just pray that you would just fill, go to our website, fill in the connect card form there with the uh, link on screen. Make contact with us. We'd love to touch base with you and just see how we can uh, work with you in your own journey with God. We're continuing today our four-week series through the book of Philippians, and we're doing it through the lens of value. What matters? What can drive us in our life? What are the things that really do matter? And once we know that, we can decide for our own life. We can decide what we are going to commit ourselves to. And because we know what that is, we can decide what we're not going to commit ourselves to, what we're going to let slip by. And so we've looked so far at chapter one, where we saw that to Paul and to Jesus, and therefore to us, people matter most. Nothing comes close on this earth to the things that we consume ourselves with. Besides, obviously, our our walk with God, it will overflow into this whole idea that people matter most. Everything we do must feed into and through that funnel. The only way we can do that is to take our interest off ourselves. And so last week we looked at humility and the fact that the only way that God's people or any people can really make this whole thing work, being as diverse as we are, is to lift others up, to come as Jesus came and not value ourselves less, but look at others and value them and lift them up higher. Humility truly is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And so today we want to branch into chapter 3, one of the most profound and inspiring chapters of scripture you'll ever read, where Paul's heart just leaks out. He's in prison, he's chained to a wall, but you could, you'd swear he's in a field somewhere watching the daisies. He's so happy, there's so much joy and there's so much focus in his life that you'd swear everything's going well for him. So what is it that could drive a man like this to have a perspective like this? to be in circumstantial pain, but in spiritual joy. Well, we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you. Again, it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Interesting start to a chapter. Uh, you look at the combinations of thoughts there. He says, rejoice. He says, be happy. You, you know, find and focus on the things that really bring joy to your life, which is obviously God and people. But then he says in the same breath, beware. Beware of people who are going to come in and what they're going to try and do is deflect you off course. The context here for these guys is they're going to deflect off course of the gospel and try and uh, bring you away from this focus, this single-mindedness that, that Paul had about his life. He said there, there's going to be distractions come. And if ever there was a time in history where distractions really do come in, it's now. You'll find that whether it's in church life or career or whatever part of your life, there are shrill voices screaming at us that will try to push us off track. They're relentless. And in the absence of an intention by us, I mean energetic intention, focus, work, discipline. We will be drawn off track because the power of those shrill voices are strong and relentless and diverse. They'll take us in all sorts of directions. We've got quick options that bombard our vision for life, for even for things like food and activity and opportunity, our relationships. There are all these distractions. There are quick fix, almost junk food alternatives for us in all those areas. And there's always, we find, because of the bombarding, there's, there's always too much for us to do that must be done, that takes us away from what should be done. The distractions of life, the the urgent stuff that bombards upon us. In the end, 
we start to wear our busyness, something like a badge. We say, oh, I'm just too busy, I'm just too busy. But no one has responsibility for our life except you. You are the captain of your soul in that sense. We live under God and he's given us authority over our life. The world does not have authority over your timetable. You have it. So how do we find focus in that? And in Paul's context, he's talking about people who are coming with all sorts of retrofits to the gospel and saying that there were certain practices and days and rituals that we had to follow. Christ came, Christ has come and he's given you salvation. Uh, you need that, they would say. But you also need to follow the holy days. You need to uh, abstain from certain practices and so on. They were saying yes to Christ, but that, but that there were all these other things that you're required to do as well. And this is a very hard mindset for God's people to break out of. We all have these lifestyle expectations and, and we have selected scriptures to back them up, don't we? We all have this grid of things that, well, if you're a Christian, you will look like this, you will be like this, you'll, you'll live like this. And this may be so, but the expectation of that is a very dangerous ground for us to live in because the, the focus is on outward markers. It's really hard for us to not to hardwire our image of salvation into these external markers that we judge people by. We're judging their soul by what we see on the outside. Very dangerous ground. And Paul's really highlighting that today. But you notice what Paul focuses on and what Jesus focused on as well. Because these guys were coming in and saying, look, there's all these Old Testament practices that need to be adhered to as well as faith in Christ. But you look at what Jesus focused on. You look at what Paul focused on. It was something quite different. Jesus in, in uh, uh, Matthew 15 verse 8 says this, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Notice the difference there. There's external, internal. They honor me with their lips. There's the outside, but their hearts, the inside, is far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You see, Paul's focus, Jesus' focus, is that the, it's not the rules. It's not the religion. Religion is largely a man-made construct that we find to be the house of our faith in that sense. It's a way we say it must fit into these boxes. But Paul and Jesus both, their focus was not on that. Their focus was very much on the inward, not the outward. They were saying there are certain conditions on the inside of us that need to be in place. And that's what they focused on. And, but we need to know that the, disen, the disendorsing of outward works is not the same as endorsing inward rebellion. Just dwell on that for a moment. So they're, they're saying, well, the outward stuff, let's, let's treat that as a non-issue compared to what's going on in the inside. And so disendorsing the outward as a marker is not endorsing that what's going on inside doesn't matter at all. It's saying it very much matters what's going on on the inside. And, and you can't have rebellion against God in your heart and say you're placing your faith in him and saying, no, this is an incongruence here. And so it's all about what's going on on the inside. It's, it's not so much about markers either. It's not even about the things that we define. See, we want to judge people by what they do, even what they think, or all this stuff that we can somehow measure. But the big issue, if you look at what the Gospels come down to, what Paul comes down to time and time again, it's this fact, it's not about markers. It's about what's driving us. What's driving us from the inside? What, what is this passion? What is this power that's in us? Is the power that's within us the flesh. This is how Paul would define it. Very binary. He'd say, you're either being empowered by the flesh or you're being empowered by the spirit. If I'm empowered by the flesh, it's my human desires. It's my personality. It's my lusts. It's all the stuff that I say I have no choice about. He's saying, 
you can't be driven by that. We're supposed to be, if our life is in faith, faith means I'm relying on what? A, I'm relying on Jesus to save me from my sins, but B, after that, I'm relying on him to empower this life that without him is impossible. And so it's, all, it's not about markers, it's about power. What's empowering our life? And it's either the flesh or it's a spirit. And we have this incredible knack of just bouncing between one and the other from any moment. And so this is the grapple. This is the fight that we have. And so Paul's mindset is that our focus isn't on the form, it's not on the markers, but on the person of Jesus. Look at how he goes on in Philippians 3, verse 7. He says, But whatever, gains, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Man, what a scripture. We could bury ourselves in there for the rest of the year. And I'm so tempted to want to do that. But you, look, you can taste the conviction in the guy. You can just taste the passion. He's saying, once I figured this out, once I understood this, I now have a single pursuit. There's this one thing, he says, that I pursue. And now everything else in my life must serve this higher vision, this higher cause. And what is that cause? Well, let's spell it out the way he did. He said, A, to know Christ. So I want to know him, not just know about him. I want to get involved. I want to integrate. I want to weave my life in with Jesus. I want to see the one who sees me. I want to know Christ. Then he says to know the power of the resurrection. So there's a power thing. He's saying, I want to engage with him. This isn't about all the markers. I want to know this power because without it, I'm just faking it. Without it, I'm just trying to mimic Christianity. I'm trying to look like a Christian, but on the inside, it's just human strength that's doing it. So, and the third one, and the one we often leave out, is to pay a price with him. He says he wants to know the sufferings. He wants to share in the sufferings of God. Why would anybody want to do that? Well, if you've ever served in ministry in your local church or you've, you've stood up for someone in Jesus' name, you understand the joy. You understand the honor of paying a price to be a Christian. I tell you, there's nothing like it because the world can't give that to you. You say, I'm prepared to take a hit. I'm prepared to get bruised and a little bit beaten up if I have to, but I will stand for the gospel. I will stand for this thing that matters most. And something happens in your heart when you do that. You don't do it to receive that. You do it because of the honor of paying that, Christ, uh, paying that price for Jesus. And so they're the three things to know Christ, to know the power of that life, of that resurrected life, and to pay a price for doing that with him. And so I have to look at the own my own filter of my own life in this regard. And we all have to do this. I do it quite regularly. Does my life serve this higher cause? Does everything in my life serve this higher thing? Or have I somehow found a way that this higher thing, this gospel, serves my life? This is a sobering thing. Have I allowed myself to be Christian, but all my time is lived in the world? So have I allowed, have I, do I pray that God would somehow fit into that rather than the other way around? Does, who serves who here? Does the gospel serve my life to make it just a better life for me? Does, am I looking for Jesus to give me promotion and elevation and blessing and all these things? Or am I conforming my life to fit in with this vision that he has? Very interesting, very confronting question for us all to live. 
And uh, for me, as a, as a minister who essentially has the honor of, uh, with my family, just giving our whole life just purely to the gospel cause, there's no conflict uh, apparent for us there. There's no career that's competing with that. My career literally is now the gospel. Um, but I've got to come back because uh, that's a confusing life as well. And so I, there's still the same mixture that most of us have to live with. There's, there's the joy and the fruit of, of living that life, but there's also the frustration. There's also the disappointments. There's also the relentless expectations that come. And so to put up with that for the, the, the lack of real obvious worldly rewards for that is very sobering as well. And so you've got to, it forces you, it compels you to ask the question, is this real? Am I, am I really doing this for something that's worth fighting for? Have I made this all up? These are the questions that go through all of our minds, isn't it? And so we have to come to the conclusion very clearly and very quickly about the reality of this thing because the Christian life is either living for this higher cause or it's some unacceptable dilution um, that doesn't fit in with the gospel account and it just leads to a frustrated life of, of menial and lukewarm Christianity. So we've either got to be hot or we're going to end up being cold. So for me, I've got to say, is this true? Is what I'm reading here true? Is this real? And I'm getting really personal here. I'm getting really gritty. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because if we believe it, the ramifications are huge. The ramifications are exactly the conclusion Paul came to. So I've got to say, is this true? And I've got to remember and remind myself again, I remember the day I met him. I remember the day my life was turned inside out. Not everyone has the joy of having that. I've gone from a non-Christian to a Christian background. I remember the moment. I remember the decisions that I made to place my faith in Christ. I remember the seasons in my life, as you must surely do as well, where I've trusted him, where I've stopped striving, I've stopped fighting. I've just said, I'm just going to trust and watch you work. And I've seen him do things, incredible things, amazing things that no coincidence ever could. And I remember the hundreds of miracles. I remember hearing his audible voice, which I've had the honor of having. I remember his tangible touch in so many lives. I see all these things. And I remind myself, it's true, it's real. This gospel that I'm fighting for and that he calls us all to fight for is real. And I realize that whatever else I know, and I don't know much, and I've got lots of questions about life and I've got lots of questions about faith, just as everyone has to grapple with. But whatever else I don't know, I know this to be true, that Jesus came and died for sinners like you and I to do what I could never do for myself that he dwells in me and invites me to participate in this resurrection life, that he values people so much that he died for them. So people matter most. And he calls you and I to join him in the grandest enterprise the world's ever seen, to build the kingdom of God with him, to advance the cause of that. But that truth, that reality, that vision for life, which we can grasp by going through the, the process of logic like this, is always only one inconvenience away or one, one distraction away uh, from becoming redundant in my life. It can quickly become irrelevant if I allow the distractions. As Paul was warning against, he says, watch out for these guys. They're distracting you off this one path here. And it's our culture that we live in. This modern day life of, of copious choices will, will sweep us away into diluted wastefulness in our life. And so I can miss, miss, if I do that, I miss this joy of the, the intensity of the fruit of sowing into the wild world the seeds of the kingdom and seeing it bear fruit in a harsh land that is Australia. The tang of that fruit when you see God do something and you've been a part of that. There is nothing like that. But if I allow myself to be diluted in my cause and my focus, I lose all that. There's a great proverb in Proverb 27.7 that says this about this 
desire and this focus for life about what God's about. It says this, one who is full loathes honey from the comb, but to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. What it's saying there is if your life is so full of distraction, so full of junk food, of of the, the sugar lollies of life, so to speak, you can have all that. And then the honey of the kingdom, you can't even taste that sweetness anymore. But when he says that to the hungry, even the bitter tastes sweet. That's Paul's life in prison. The bitterness of that life, even that can taste sweet. And my conclusion with watching the fervency of my own life and other people's lives as I've journeyed with so many thousands now through their, their walk of faith is that the biggest enemy of fervency in that life is quite simply the lack of desire for it. Our biggest enemy is that we don't hunger anymore. We don't have that desire. We're so full of the sugar lollies of life that we've lost the sweetness of the kingdom. And so as we begin to focus then, we look at what Paul said, is that what he's pursuing there, he's starting to say, hang on, I've allowed myself to be very narrow in what I see, what I value, and all this other sort of thing. We can look at his perspective because when we look at this, we see terminology like the prize and we define it in Western ways. He saw things very differently. Let's tune in in verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, whatever that it is. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is head, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is very Western language, the way we read this. But don't forget, Paul is a Hebrew. Paul's not living in the West. He's never seen life the way we see it. He hasn't got a material context. He doesn't have this thing that we have that is crippling to the biblical uh, worldview. Because we see life as a line that goes up to the right and, 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 and up. And we say, when I win the prize, when I find the goal, it means I've reached a destination. It means I've won. There's a prize here. This is how we read this. I've won the prize, which means I've crossed a certain line. I've got this certain thing or this certain circumstance, and I'm pressing on towards that because when I get that, I'm going to be happy. We call this destination disease. I'll be happy when, I'll be happy if, when we cross a certain line or whatever it is, then that's when joy is there. And we read that into this, but it's not quite what Paul was saying. We say things like, I'll give to God when my business or my career hits a certain point and it's a certain income. When I get there, I'll do this. Destination disease, because we find we never actually get there. When I get a spouse, I'll be able to give my life to God. Uh, I'll know I'm significant when I hit the next rung on the ladder. Um, we have all these lines. You've probably had them in your own life. I've had the battle against them too. But we see, when we look at Paul's understanding of life, his prize was not a destination. His prize was a direction. This is much harder for us to embrace and find joy in because we find joy with the wind. He found joy in the journey. Very different mindset. But the journey is eternal, and that's why he could find that joy. The circumstances became irrelevant for him because they were just for a fleeting moment. He was looking at a direction. He saw life as a movement, not a moment. The moments come and go, but the movement goes on forever. What he's talking about, the lens that he's looking through, the the prize that Paul is searching for. It's not to get just a simple crown on his head when he dies that says, winner, you, you did more than anybody else. Again, that's that Western mindset. And we can find scriptures to back that up. But you've got to look at the context of the culture and what it meant to them. It was a movement, not a moment. What they're talking about is shalom. They're talking about this state of the created order. Look at Genesis 1. Look at Genesis 2. Look at the end of the book at Revelation. Could we finish where we started? Genesis, 
shows God's created order where there was peace, shalom, peace with self, peace with uh, our world, peace with God and peace with each other. It was the way things were meant to be. And this shalom is not a moment. Shalom is not a state of circumstance. It's a movement. It's the way things are and the way they continue to be. And it's a growing direction. It's not a moment, it's a movement. This is the way Shalom works. Cornelius Plantigna, great theologian, written a book on this very thing, on Shalom. And he sums the whole thing up with this definition. He says, Shalom is webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and saviour opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is what Jesus promised to you. He said, my peace, I'll leave you. You know, he said this shalom, this, this is what he meant when he, we define the word peace, was shalom this state that we've just described. He said, this is what I'm giving you. The circumstances come and go. You're going to have trouble, he said, but I've given you peace. So take heart in that. It was the design of Eden. It's the culture of the new heaven and the new earth. When we get to heaven, heaven's not the end point for us. Eventually, there's going to be a complete renewal of heaven and earth. And we're going to start again, back to the way it was supposed to be, this time without the implications of sin. It's going to be marvelous. And it's going to go on and on as we continue to have the realm of the cosmos look more and more like the design of Eden. It's just an incredible vision. The profoundness of it, the size of it, is, is just hard for us to grasp. It will never stop growing in depth and width. This is the prize. Paul wants to live in Shalom. He'd found a way to do that now because the eternal story for you and for I doesn't start one day. It starts today. The goal, the prize, you can gain, you can gain that in a sense of it's being a movement today. And so uh, Paul experienced that in prison, in very deep hardship, physical pain and so on. We all experience some of that. Some of you watching are experiencing sickness, uh, difficulty of circumstance, relational breakdown, all those sorts of things. You can experience shalom. He offers it right there. We need to exercise that through faith in our journey right now. He goes on and concludes in verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so what he's really saying there is we need to find ways to press in to this goal the way that he is. Lean in, he's talking about. I'm leaning in to this prize, this shalom. And so we need to deal with the things in our life that incite us to lean away because the distractions will continue to do that. And so how do we do that? How do we stop leaning away and start leaning in? Well, it can start with the daily practices of, of giving God a time, a place, uh, a, a ritual in our life of faith where we start the day of leaning into him, reflecting on what he said, absorbing his promises into our heart and saying, I'm believing that in faith. I can have this peace today. And we make it a priority in our life. We also really make a choice to treat, as Paul did, as worthless that which is temporary. We put things into their place. We get that, get that heavenly perspective back and say, all this stuff, all this distraction, all this material stuff that we pursue, it really is ultimately worthless. 
And so we treat it with the value with which it really has compared to the higher value of the higher prize. We, it might require us to fast from distraction, to, to, to put ourselves away, almost as the, as the old uh, spiritual fathers used to do, to exercise the spiritual disciplines of solitude and so on. And so perhaps there's one thing we need to think about that helps us lean in as well. It's one thing to lean away, but how do we begin to lean in? Well, Paul, if you read the, the, uh, the fullness of his writings, he would often lean back to this place of transfixing our gaze upon Jesus because we become what we behold. He's saying, if you want to lean in, look at Jesus. Train your gaze on him. We can also train our gaze on what this win looks like. First, we need to have a vision for life. We need to say, what, what would it look like for me to win in this, to, to gain the prize as Paul had? He had such a clear vision in his mind. Do we have that clear vision? And you can think in, in terms of, well, imagine the, the, the lack of stress, the lack of um, being run and owned by the dis disappointments and the frustrations of my life, that I'm at, I'm at peace, I'm free of all that. Anything can happen, but it doesn't take away my peace. To be able to focus on the joy of people, the person with you right now, the people that God's put in your life. To embrace the deep daily faith of just knowing the joy of relying on Him to fulfill what you could never do in your own strength. From stopping all those high-powered engines in our heart that just keep spinning so fast. To stop and just say, I'm trusting in God. To have and enjoy the glow of, of passionate worship where we just stop and we just are enthralled by the wonder of who God is. That's shalom. We can have a vision for that. We can prioritize that. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's the vision for life. Put our gaze on Him and we become who we behold. And the experience of shalom that He's promised, that we're destined for, that we're created for, becomes ours, no matter what the circumstance. Let's pray together into that situation in your life. Father, I pray for each one who's watching. Because Lord, no doubt our circumstances are far from perfect. And yet this peace is what you offer. So Lord, I pray that for each of us, you'd grant us the faith to take on that peace. The vision to be able to see what that looks like. To put our gaze upon you. To reflect on you. And to become what we behold. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to live from your power, your vision and your shalom today. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's been great to join with you today. I hope that's been a blessing to you in some form. Would love to see you at church too. See you again soon.